1: This episode is brought to you by Canva. Better presentations are possible. You just need Canva presentations. With it, you can easily and quickly make stunning slides. All you have to do is start with one of Canva's professionally designed templates or generate slides with AI. Then add graphs, charts, and more from the massive media library, and you're done. It's that simple. Nail your next work presentation with Canva presentations at canva.com, designed for work. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibly listed at indeed.com slash plane. Just go to indeed.com slash plane right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Today's episode is about China's turn toward authoritarianism and the prospects that an invasion of Taiwan could kick off World War III. If you don't know a lot about China, If you are interested in or astonished from afar by its COVID zero policy, or by its alarming saber rattling toward Taiwan, or its relationship with Russia, or its animosity toward its biggest tech founders, or the possible collapse of its economic growth story, or even by the awkward relationship between the Chinese Communist Party and TikTok, the most important social media app in America, if you're interested in all this stuff, but you kind of don't know where to begin, you can't see the full picture, Then you and i are in the same boat i am not a china expert at all but i'm fascinated by all of this and i'm alarmed by all of this i am alarmed by the new direction of the country's politics and by the character of its leader xi jinping today today's guest is an expert in all things china his name is bill bishop bill writes the incredibly popular Sinocism newsletter he has a new podcast out called sharp china and he has been writing about and talking about China for years. And in this episode, we discuss my biggest fears and questions. What is happening to the Chinese economy right now? Is Xi Jinping a tyrant? And if he chooses to invade Taiwan, is that World War III? I'm Derek Thompson. This is Plain English. Bill Bishop, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'd like to start with you personally. Tell me how long you've been researching China, learning about China, and writing about China.
0: So I guess I have to disclose my age, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I actually started studying Chinese in college in 1986. I went to Middlebury. And I first went to uh, Beijing in 1989 in the spring uh, on a junior year, second semester abroad, uh, arrived in January, left in late June and and was there during uh, uh, the the sort of protests and crackdown in Tiananmen Square. Uh, then I went to Taiwan for a year in 1990, 91. Then I worked in Beijing from mid, late 91 to mid 93, came back to U.S. for grad school, uh, ended up going out to Silicon Valley to a, a company that was had a data business in China, a joint venture that blew up. But at that company, we founded uh, what became MarketWatch.com. Um, so for a while, I did nothing related to China. I was at marketwatch.com. We took it public in 1999, sold it to Dow Jones in end of 2004, early 2005. And about that time, I moved to Beijing to try and do an online gaming startup with a friend of mine. And then, then I ended up living in Beijing for 10 years, moved back
1: here to DC in 2015. Uh, so we have a couple of things that line up there. I was born in 1986. I was in China in 2005. Uh, my dad was obsessed with China when I was younger, and we went the year after my freshman year. We went to Beijing, to Xi'an, we went all the way out to Kashgar um, in Xinjiang and Erunchi, all the way out in the west where you cannot go, frankly, as a Westerner anymore. And in fact, for a lot of people, you can't go as as um, as a Chinese person either. Um, and so I, I've I do I'm not an expert in China, um, disappointing uh, my dad potentially, but I am just utterly fascinated by what's happening in that country right now and the geopolitical implications uh, of this incredible moment that we're seeing. So tell me, as someone. Who has been looking at China for three, four decades? there's a lot of media heat around the fact that we are entering a new era uh, in history in China. What do you think is different about this moment in history from everything that you've seen in the past?
0: Uh, well, the new era is actually what Xi Jinping and the Communist Party calls it themselves. Um, what's really different, I think, is you know China is is rich and powerful, and it has a leader who um just in the last few weeks has broken what were assumed to be these norms around uh political leadership in china and is now on his third term as the general secretary of the communist party um so i think that you know we're from outside of china we're seeing a, a, a china that um you know they talk about how china stood up um china got rich and now china's getting strong and so part of this era and this is what the chinese the 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 Xi Jinping and the Communist Party, what they say. And so we're in very much the getting strong phase. And so we're seeing a China that really for the for the first time in a couple centuries, but really in many ways forever, is um, truly an actor in every dimension, really everywhere around the world. And um, it, it, so so it's a real adjustment for everybody to figure out how to
1: absorb and adjust and Um, deal with that. It's interesting to think that China's geopolitical power has never been larger than this in the multi-thousand-year history uh, of of the country, of of the nation, of the people. I want to talk about how Xi represents a departure from history specifically. So in October, as you said, China's leader Xi Jinping secured his groundbreaking third term. What should Americans who aren't consistently following the China headlines— what should they know about G that makes him different from his predecessors in china?
0: um well, you know, it's interesting there's a there is a lot of continuity with his predecessors, but the the real i think divergences are that he is um he's he's a sort of second generation uh, you know son of one of the early leaders, so he's really more of a man on a mission. he He really does believe that Um, he is the guy to deliver what they call the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. Um, And he's also uh, been able, through various um, maneuvers, campaigns, machinations, to become the most powerful leader, now it looks like, in China, since, since Mao Zedong, who died in 1976. And so he now, coming out of the 20th Party Congress that concluded at the end of October, he really is... Um, unchallenged as the leader of the country. And so, you know, that can mean that if he makes good policies, things could happen and that could be positive. But it also means that, you know, when someone has so much individual power, the potential for policy errors, um, both domestically
1: and globally are pretty significant, are pretty pretty elevated. So let's talk about the Xi agenda. And I think one place we can start is with zero COVID. Uh, China is, to my mind, the only country in the world, maybe the only major country in the world that is still pursuing a policy of trying to zero out COVID spread while at the same time rejecting the mRNA vaccines that were produced in the West. Help us explain why is Xi doing this?
0: So, so when China, when, when COVID first hit, you know, China locked down Wuhan for, um, many weeks and basically for, for a pretty significant period of time after that, there was, um, life was almost normal in China. They closed the borders effectively. Um, but life inside China was fairly normal. You know, people masked, you had to check you have these, um, you have an app where you have to sort of scan your code and get tested on a regular basis. Um, you know, the, 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 even through Delta, they were okay. Omicron has really messed things up. But for the first couple of years after the after the outbreak in Wuhan, you know, it was a it was a massive victory for China. They avoided mass death. They avoided mass sickness. They avoided mass um, economic dislocations, except at the beginning, uh, the first few weeks, a couple months after after the the initial outbreak, um, and but. So there's there's a lot of popular support for what they've done, and they've done a very good job. I mean, in many ways, you know, they have a powerful propaganda apparatus, but at the same time, the, the propaganda writes itself when they're talking about how other countries, especially the U.S. and in the West, mishandled COVID in terms of misinformation, vaccinations, mass deaths, et cetera. What happened, though, was so so there was a almost two-year period where things were going reasonably well. There were some occasional lockdowns of cities, but there, there really wasn't... Um, it really didn't get bad in terms of things, maybe this dynamic zero COVID policy is kind of super messed up wh- around the lockdown in Shanghai in April, May, where where you locked down, you know, one of the most cosmopolitan cities in the world, 20 plus million people, um, caused a huge, huge problems, food insecurity. Some people did starve to death, a fair number of suicides, et cetera. And so, you know, the problem China faces though, is, you know, even even with, If they had taken in the mRNA vaccines, you know they don't. As we've learned, unfortunately, they don't. They don't prevent the spread, the transmission. Right? They do. They do have a lot of efficacy in reducing severe illness and death. Uh, The Chinese vaccines are also relatively good at reducing severe illness and death. The, The strange thing, though, is even though China, you know, can be a very coercive, the government can be very coercive. The vaccination efforts were surprisingly soft touch, and so there's a significant group of elderly who are unvaccinated. And so it, it really is likely that if they were to just basically say, okay, we're, we're done, we're gonna let it rip, that they would have a pretty massive outbreak and a lot of deaths among the senior populations. I mean, the the, the sort of the, the closest analog is probably Hong Kong, where they had um, really a lot of elderly people die. And if on a per capita basis if that would happen in China, it would be probably in the hundreds of thousands. And that would obviously be a humanitarian disaster, um, an economic disaster, but it would also be a huge political problem for Xi Jinping, the leadership, because they've staked a huge amount of legitimacy on putting human life first. What they say, protecting the people, in comparison with the uh, with the sort of crumbling Western systems. And so it's it, this is this has become this fight against COVID, this dynamic zero COVID, has become a part of the our system is better than their system propaganda. And so if they end up having to Pull back, and they have similar scenes of of mass ex, mass illness, mass death, that destroys that propaganda bit. And it and and the other problem too is China, as as rich and powerful it is and now is, it's the health infrastructure is still not great, and so it could very quickly become overwhelmed. And what they, you know, one of their problems is they have no natural immunity to the virus in the in the country because they've actually had so few cases officially. I think they say they have had less than a million cases. The data is probably not completely accurate. Maybe it's an order of magnitude more who've gotten sick, but it's not like half the country's gotten COVID at some point, right? And so they just don't have the national immunity that, say, we have here in the U.S.
1: I want to go back to something you said. You said that China, in part, pursued this policy of zero COVID to protect people. But their policy, as practiced in Shanghai, led to people starving to death and led to suicides which I have to imagine, if the same thing happened in the US, it would be an absolute national scandal. I mean, people would rise up and say, these lockdowns in what's the equivalent of New York City are causing people to starve in Manhattan, in Brooklyn. They're throwing themselves off of roofs. They're killing themselves. What was the national response to the news that people in Shanghai We're starving during these lockdowns?
0: Well, you know, the media is uh, pretty well controlled. And so it it, it, it wasn't a national conversation. A lot of this was not known or or not known at the time. Um, A lot of anger in Shanghai, a lot of um, disappointment, you know, expectations that the the Shanghai government especially was always seen as the most competent in China. And it turned out to be incompetent, at least when it came to handling COVID. Um, But, you know i think i think the answer to that is is pretty mixed there are other you know not everyone was sympathetic because shanghai is sometimes seen as arrogant and it was sort of like okay they get what some other places have gotten which is unfortunate but in general it was it was i think a um sort of a broader especially in shanghai where you have again a lot of um you know a lot of middle class people upper middle class people people who really bought into the way that the, the China has been developing, um, it was pretty shocking for a lot of people to see how quickly whatever rights they thought they had could just be taken away in pursuit of this dynamic zero COVID. Now, China has a very good, what they call, stability maintenance system. Effectively, various, various bits of security services that are focused on preventing things like mass protests, things like... Um, you know, significant what they call public opinion incidents where sort of stuff goes viral online, gets people really pissed off. Um, And so, you know, they, they, people, the cost of anything like protests are, you know, are are high. And so it's very far from the bad experience in Shanghai and people being upset and some people being food insecure and, you know, some people actually starving and committing suicide to any sort of a mass protest. I mean, that's just, it's a, it's, there's still, it's, still not there yet in terms of how uh, upset people are. Because again, for the most part, at least up until March, most people supported this. Even though there was, it was inconvenient, the fact remains that it still had a better outcome for most people than, say, living here in the U.S. At least that's how it's viewed because of the way, partially reality, partially the
1: propaganda. So COVID zero represents one aspect of the extraordinary crackdown that's been a part of Xi's agenda. Another aspect of that absolute power has been what's happened in China's tech community. Uh, Last year, my friend, the writer Noah Smith, wrote this piece that went everywhere called, quote, why is China smashing its tech industry, end quote. And he pointed out that the Chinese government seems to be cracking down on consumer tech companies. They've called video games spiritual opium, but at the same time, they're pairing that strategy of smashing their consumer-facing internet software companies with a strategy that seems to elevate a national industrial policy, like, for example, subsidizing the manufacturing of semiconductors. Um, How do you make sense of China's tech policy right now, where they seem to be smashing some things while elevating others? So I think there is an element of a push to redirect capital
0: towards sort of more tangibly productive things that fit into sort of the broader strategic goals of the of the Communist Party around things like semiconductors, what they call sort of choke point technologies, which are the sort of key hardcore technology that the US has a bit of, a, has a stranglehold on. Um, and, it just, and in some cases is actually doing the choking around China. Um, it's, it is, though, I think, a little bit too simplistic to, to sort of say that the crackdowns were solely based on that. You know, you look at um, a, a general... Move over the last few years in the Xi Jinping era to rein in some of the private entrepreneurs to sort of inject the party everywhere and to um, check the the sort of the growing power of some of the bigger private entrepreneurs. Uh, the ja- the crackdown on 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 Alipay and Jack Ma. Can you just pause and say who those two people are? Well, so Jack Ma founded Alibaba. At one point, I think was the richest man in China. He was he was he had launched uh, the company. Launched a. a sort of a kind of like PayPal, but called Alipay, but then it became really a platform for all sorts of um, uh, loan products, lending products, and they were going to go public. Might've been the biggest IPO ever, I think, or one of the biggest IPOs ever. And this was probably two years ago. And right before it was about to go public, the the government cracked down and Jack Ma sort of disappeared from public view for a while uh, the company's never recovered alibaba's never really recovered but the but point the point there was is there was i think a combination of factors um that were it wasn't so obvious that oh it's about we need to redeploy this capital to chips for example you know there was a a clipping of the wings of of a very sort of popular private entrepreneur um, there was also the fact that alipay was the the it's the way its lending platform work it was actually transmitting a huge amount of risk into the financial system and they were skimming off the profits and the company itself wasn't taking on the risk but they were basically passing it throughout the system and in, in i think really magnifying some of the financial risks in the chinese economy um but but the the net result was a very chilling message to a lot of private entrepreneurs um then there were the crackdown on what they call these platform companies alibaba being one other ones like like meituan which sort of does you know food delivery and and a whole bunch of other stuff and and, and it was a broadly um speaking it, it was a combination of there there's for example there's they one of the things that got really hot for a while was these um like community grocery sites where you would basically you get together with a group of your neighbors and you could buy a bunch of groceries cheap and get them delivered. And they were undercutting local stores and all, all these businesses were losing money. They were subsidized by hundreds of millions or billions of venture capital money. And it was it was basically just pissing money away, to, to excuse my French. And, and I think the government said, this is bad for everybody. We're exploiting workers, you're exploiting the delivery people, you're destroying local businesses. You know, this is not a productive use of capital. And so again, it, it is not a, Free market economy, and so it was part of the. We need to redirect this capital into more productive uses, while at the same time, sort of um, constricting some of the private entrepreneurs, making sure that they're sort of towing the line a little better. Um, the, the net result, I think, has been has been quite chilling, and it is emblematic, I think, of a of a broader uh, shift in China under Xi Jinping away from kind of the go go capitalism-like activities to a much more controlled, regulated um, uh, set of activities
1: that are have much more direction from the Communist Party. That's a great answer. So it's not just about industrial policies saying we want fewer consumer tech companies and we want more no, funding and shifts. That's a piece it's also of it, about but it's power. Not,
0: it's, it's, it's multi-dimensional.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, talk to the chilling effect this has or might have on the next generation of entrepreneurs. Like I don't want to, I don't want to do like the simplistic American thing where I just apply everything that's happening in China and say, what if that happened here? But I just can't imagine that any country in the world doing this to a generation of respected entrepreneurs wouldn't have some chilling effect on either foreign direct investment or global entrepreneurs wanting to move from some country into a china and america a uk i mean what are the downstream effects on the tech community of china so i think it depends
0: on the sector i mean if you're if you're doing investing around sort of biotech or semiconductors this is a kind of a golden era right because a lot there's a a lot of policy support a lot of money um, a lot of startups and too many. The, most of them will probably blow up. But 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 if you're starting another ride sharing or another like group buying thing, then you just forget about it, right? And you know that it's not necessarily bad, right? There are too many of those things, right? I mean, you know, who needs another Go Puff to just go Puff, right? Blow up all that money. The the um, in terms of the global um, sort of, it's interesting because it, it has had a it's one of the things that has i think has been has a significant impact on the valuations of the chinese firms that were listed overseas um who are you know down pretty significantly in the last two years um not solely because of this obviously the market's down too but it had definitely had an impact it has had an impact on a a lot of global investors views of sort of the the investability of of chinese and chinese startups um it has also uh, you know it's interesting on the one hand uh, Xi Jinping, you know, they they started a new effort to really attract global talent for key sectors of the economy, you know, specifically around biotech, around hard, harder technology. Um, but at the same time, I think a lot of these things are also chilling. So so they, maybe they don't want the digital nomad who shows up in Beijing or Shanghai to do another consumer internet startup. But if you're somebody who wants to go there and do a chip startup, as long as the US government no, now doesn't block you from doing that, you're probably going to be welcome.
1: And we're going to talk about the relationship, this decoupling between the U.S. and China in just a second. I want to make sure that we hit the economic downturn because it would be one thing if China was pursuing this policy when its annual GDP growth rate was 8%, 9%, 10% as it was 15 years ago, or if there was no problem in the real estate industry. But instead, the real estate boom is over and China's growth has crashed to I don't even know, low single digits, maybe the entire country is in a recession. Why don't you give me a temperature check on how you see the state of the Chinese economy right now? Do you believe that they are in a recession?
0: I think the state of the economy is is probably the worst since I've been an adult. Um, you know, there just is, a lot of the easy money has been made, a lot of the easy growth has happened. Uh, they have been on a long-term, it's a multi-year attempt to, Reduce financial risks in the economy, which which involves not necessarily fully deleveraging, but slowing down the growth of leverage. And you know, the biggest problem, or the one of the biggest problems, is the real estate market, which which at its height was probably real estate and its various related industries was like a fifth or so of the Chinese economy. Um, I think that you know you've got global headwinds, you've got dynamic zero COVID. And so it's a it's a very very difficult time and you know they've talked for years about making certain reforms there was a lot of excitement in 2013 where at um at one of the sort of annual meetings of the um the 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 Communist Party Central Committee they put out this big the, this big reform document that got people really excited because it looked like it 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 listed out a whole bunch of really important reforms that people had been arguing they should do for years and on the economic stuff, they didn't do that much, right? and so and so they, they really feels like they lost they had a window. they didn't do it. They decided to take a different approach, a much more state-driven approach, much you know what looks to be more inefficient approach. Um, and so it's it's a it's a difficult period with at this point not a lot of reason to see that um, the economy is going to sort of have any sort of structural improvements in the near term. You know, one of the things they're dealing with is a pretty significant unemployment rate among uh, like recent college grads, people in their 20s, you know, and that in part is from some of these crackdowns. We talked earlier about these tech crackdowns, you know, they there's a very, there's a booming tutoring industry, right? Where huge pressure, you have kids, you know, you go to school and then you spend hours a day doing extra tutoring, right? Because it's all focused on the, the the various exams for like the the best middle school, the best high school, and then college um, that really determine your future in a lot of ways. And so so families were were kids kids were like killing themselves to 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 do this tutoring. Families were spending huge amounts of money to get a leg up. And Xi Jinping decided that this was um, bad for um, a lot of reasons, including that it was leading people to not want to have more children because the burdens were too high. And so basically, over the course of a month, just destroyed the entire industry and put hundreds of thousands of people out of work in what were pretty good white-collar
1: jobs. The last element that I want to talk about in terms of the economy is what seems to be an emerging decoupling between the U.S. and China. Uh, Apple recently announced that they are looking to shift production out of China into other countries like Vietnam. Clearly, the last six months of policymaking from the White House and Democrats, like the Chips Act, represents to me a sort of new interest in reshoring the manufacturing of chips and becoming less dependent on, as you call them, choke point technologies that right now are manufactured in places like China. How serious do you think this economic decoupling is right now?
0: I mean, I think it's 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 pretty serious. The you know, really, it started. Really, in the Trump administration with the uh, the trade actions, um, it, you know, it's very hard to to couple in a lot of ways. Um, you know, the, and I think that, that not all the data reflect the decisions that some of the big corporations are making in terms of where they're putting their new investments or how. You know, uh, not many are pulling out of China, but they're sort of redirecting or building building sort of redundant supply chains outside of China um but china's a huge market it's very hard to decouple from china and it's it's also produces a whole bunch of stuff that americans like to buy cheaply and so it but in general i think sh- from a structural perspective the trend is towards more decoupling full decoupling would be incredibly economically painful for both sides um on technology you know these recent export controls around semiconductor um, sort of th- of the semiconductor um sort of chain are definitely a um a more aggressive or or a broader move by the us government to uh, to decouple at the sort of more advanced end from the from the um from china and you know apple's a great example though apple Throughout the 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 Trump administration, throughout the trade the trade battles over the, that period, Apple really didn't seem that worried. They they did a lot of work with the Chinese government. They did a lot of work with the U.S. government. They really felt like they could sort of navigate and not really be impacted by the tariffs. What my understanding is, what has really freaked Apple out was the Shanghai lockdown, and now they have the Zhengzhou lockdown, right, where they basically messed up Christmas for Apple, right, because they're gonna. They're, can't produce as many of the top end iPhones as they, as they, as they have demand for, for Christmas. And so I think they, you know, Tim Cook built his career and Ben Thompson's has written about this a lot, including, I think this week, I mean, he really built his career on building the supply chains in China. And, and, and now they, I think my view is they, you know, they waited too long. It's really hard to undo that. Reliance on China. And even though, for example, they're pushing production into Vietnam for some things, they're pushing production into India, you know, the, the Chinese companies who are their suppliers go with them. So they're still relying on the Chinese supply chain. They're just the Chinese companies, the, the suppliers still get their stuff made in China, right? So there's still vulnerability, even though they're putting them together in India or putting them together in Vietnam.
1: When I add all this up, it seems like the bear case for China is not very difficult to make. The real estate industry is in deep trouble. Their consumer tech industry is in trouble. Their COVID zero policy shuts down metros the size of 10, 20 million people. Wh- who knows when? O- Omicron is incredibly unpredictable. That level of unpredictability is absolute kryptonite to multinational corporations who do not want to be surprised by their global supply chains. And so, as a result, companies like Apple are pulling out of China and trying to rebalance toward places like Vietnam. And you have this entire country, which is essentially under the thumb of one man. And one man is always going to be more unpredictable than a slow moving system. I mean, that seems to me like a pretty clear bear case. What is the bull case for China over the next decade? One is if everyone is bearish, um, you know, if everyone thinks it's
0: it's because, you know, we've been through the sort of various, Versions of the China collapse idea for twenty plus years, right? And and in generally, making the bet that it's going to collapse has has been a poor decision. I, I do feel like this time, like I said earlier, this is the worst economy that that I've known as an adult. I, I do think that there are a lot more risks. There's a lot more geopolitical risk. Um, the the bull case would be. You know, it depends on what kind of investor you are. It depends on who you are. I think if if you are in Asia or you're a Chinese investor, you know, big swaths of China are still still in need of a lot of development in all sorts of different sectors, and you know, there's still a lot of lot of policies around, um, you know, renewable energy, uh, EVs, a lot of lot of policies around um, various parts, various bits of biotech, um, semiconductors, hard tech. Um, defense military industrial establishment um so there are a lot of places where people are going to make a lot of money um by making the right bets over the next five to ten years i think Um, it may not be the case that americans can do
1: that this episode is brought to you by canva here's a writing tip for work don't just write The people at KPMG make the difference for their clients. Talented teams leveraging the right technology to uncover insights that illuminate opportunity. KPMG teams together with their clients working shoulder to shoulder to help grow and transform their enterprise. Are you ready to make the difference together? Go to visit.kpmg.us backslash transformation to learn more. With Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a seventy-five dollar sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibly listed at indeed.com slash plane. Just go to indeed.com slash plane right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You said you're more worried about geopolitical risk, so we should finally talk about Taiwan. Um, Ben Rhodes, the former speechwriter and deputy national security advisor to Barack Obama, just published a long essay in The Atlantic entitled Taiwan Prepares to be Invaded. And I want to read an excerpt of that article to you and get your reaction. Quote, fate has placed Taiwan and Ukraine in similar positions, Both have giant neighbors who once ruled them as imperial possessions. Both have undergone democratic transformations and have thus become an ideological danger to the autocrats who covet their territory. Just as Putin has made the erasure of Ukraine's sovereignty central to his political project, Xi has vowed to unify China and Taiwan by force if necessary, end quote. Uh, Bill, how concerned are you about the potential for a Chinese invasion of Taiwan? Uh, well,
0: I mean, just to be clear on that bit from Ben Rose, I mean, she's policies towards Wine are, are are towards Taiwan are not different than his predecessors in the sense that um, you know, this ultimately, the view was always that ultimately they would um Taiwan would be would be become part of or quote, returned as as they would say, um, or liberated to become part of the part of the PRC. Um, no, I mean I think that you know, when the US and China um sort of rebuilt relations in the 70s. Uh, They created this kind of Rube Goldberg um, sort of a framework to deal with the issue of Taiwan um, that that was very ambiguous, um, could be interpreted differently by each side. It worked for several decades, as long as no one poked too closely at it. Um, It worked also because China was relatively weak. Um, didn't actually have or or wasn't approaching the the actual capabilities to uh, resolve this issue by force if needed, um, and there was the belief in Beijing that over time they could work with the Taiwan authorities to achieve some sort of a political solution. Um, the The political solution solution appears to be dead uh, because of the the rise of of Taiwanese identity, um, the, the, what happened in Hong Kong over the last couple of years, the rise of Xi Jinping, various factors. There's, there's almost no support now inside Taiwan for any sort of an accommodation with uh, the PRC. Um, I actually think it's really
1: important to, to stop here and have you explain a little bit about what's happened to Hong Kong over the last few years, because it really is core, I think, to the fears in Taiwan of, of China.
0: Well, it was just this idea that there could be some sort of a one country, two systems approach, where you'd be one country, but Hong Kong you can have a different system for 50 years, and then oh Taiwan, we can work something out. We have a different system, and after the protests and the crackdown and these various new laws and um, just a bunch of different things that uh, that Beijing has done in Hong Kong, the the idea of two systems now is really no one no one. And it's not attractive, say, if you're a democracy, to then go into that kind of a two system, right? It's really it increasingly looks like one country, one system. and so the 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 result from the changes in Hong Kong uh, again, were just a further blow to uh, any sort of realistic hope or realistic belief, I should say, because not everyone hopes for this, but realistic belief that there was any sort of a feasible political solution to the the issue of Taiwan um, and the PRC, and so now this status quo that we've had for forty plus years is
1: unraveling mm-hmm. right. and it's it's unraveling in a lot of different ways, which is what concerns me the most. Like if you're going at ten percent a year, internally, you don't have to expand externally. It's enough work just to keep everything going inside. When you're coupled, as China was coupled with the U.S. by trade, you're working together as trade partners to grow that trade on an annual basis. When you're dealing with a leader like who who respects tradition and doesn't seek a sort of groundbreaking third term, there's a kind of sort of traditional predictability there. But all of that is unraveling on top of evidence that China is becoming more threatening to Taiwan. So just in the last three, six months, Chinese officials have continued to claim that the entirety of the Taiwan Strait belongs to China, Chinese warplanes regularly violate Taiwan's air defense identification zone um, during the military exercises conducted after Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. China shot missiles over Taiwan and circled it with warships—the kind of maneuver that might have hinted at a future blockade. I mean, w- when when I put all that together, it makes me pretty concerned because I mean, China invading Taiwan is an a, a, a sort of an unfathomable to me. I don't know what the US does in response to it. Um, I mean, ha- the people that you talk to, I mean, how worried are they about this being, you know, a, a possibility, a probability this decade?
0: Uh, it certainly seems more possible than it did um, just a few years ago. And people are increasingly worried. And again, because it, it is not, um, it, it's, hard, it's hard to see how the status quo um, prevails. And so if that goes away, then what's what's next? I mean, you, Taiwan is not Ukraine. Um, the Taiwan military has a lot of problems. Taiwan politically has not shown the will to fix the military and build it up in the way that, um, say, the Ukrainians did after 2014. Um, that may be changing, but it's pretty slow. Uh, it is unlikely if there were some sort of real crisis, military crisis, that um, you know that we would not. The U.S. should not expect any of the European uh, countries to support it. I mean, Japan is is quite concerned and quite freaked out because Taiwan is very close to Japan, and it would be a big problem for them if Taiwan were actually were controlled by the by the PRC. Um, it, but it's a it's a unthinkable. It would be a disaster. It would be you know you'll be you'll be having your fancy iPhone will have to last several years because. There won't be any chip manufacturing for the next generation for quite some time,
1: right? Yeah, because t- Taiwan dominates the semiconductor industry. Is, well, is TSMC,
0: mm-hmm. yeah,
1: and and TSMC. Say, say more about and, and, that, just to unpack. Oh, well, I mean, that TSMC
0: acronym. is is the, you know, I mean they make they make the most advanced chips in the world in Taiwan, and so it's a no, it's a, it's a really scary, it's very scary, and you know, it's interesting here in D.C. There has been a real cycling up of this talk about how um, you know, both from the US government and then from people o- from people outside the government, parts of the DC sort of foreign policy world, about how, you know, she the the Chinese side has accelerated its timeline, you know, the risk is the risk is um, you know, something happening very, you know, in the next couple of years is significant. Um, I, I think that there, there's no question that the risk is increased. Uh it it is a um, you know, you look at sort of the way that the PRC is hardening its system from various ways over the last couple of years, they do seem like they're preparing for a much more um, contentious, friction-filled, potentially conflict-filled relationship with the U.S. So they, they're they trying to, you know, they, you know, one of the lessons from what happened with Ukraine is, well, here are the different sanctions packages that the U.S. and other countries imposed on Russia. So that it's for them. It's an exercise to see what they would do, how they would impact the Chinese economy, and and how they can harden their um, harden themselves to minimize the impact of of similar sanctions if something were to were to occur over Taiwan. Um, but you know, you you do hope that rationality prevails because there's no winners if they if there's any sort of a conflict over Taiwan. It's
1: disaster for everybody. You mentioned it'd be disaster for taiwan it'd be a disaster for in a different way iphone owners or anyone wanting to update their iphone due to taiwan's dominance of the chip industry uh, give me one other spillover effect of china taking taiwan i this all of this is such an unfathomable to me i don't know this part of the world at all so it's very difficult for me to even begin to war game i, this, mean, but I mean look at the, what happens look at the 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 relationship the us russia relationship that's
0: what the us china relationship would be but it would be much more dislocating because there's so much more interlinkages between the us and china but if this were to happen you know there there's there's no way from it, sort of in the us domestic politics that any side of the aisle could basically go, oh, okay we'll figure it out and we'll sort of figure out how to go back to business as usual it, it would be a, it would be
1: just like the way things are with right. us and russia and an attempt to globally exile this country right. except but it's it not the much more, 15th would, biggest gdp in the world it's number two
0: it would be much more much more damaging to the global economy It'd be damaging the u.s economy it would be again it, it, this is there are it's a disaster right we we have to figure out how this does not come to pass and you know the problem is that i think People have been sleepwalking for too long. And in some ways it feels like it's we're a few years too late to try and address this issue. And so the risks are, like I said earlier, the risks have definitely increased. I'm not in the camp that, you know, it's gonna happen in the next year or, you
1: know, next couple of years. But I'm also not gonna say it's impossible. Last question, and sorry to make it a hard question, but you know, you know, you are widely read by people that are incredibly influential and have the power to make decisions in Washington, D.C. that could potentially, at the margins, affect the odds of a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. What do you tell policymakers who reach out to you to say, what can we do here? Like, we, we don't control Xi, we don't control China, but maybe our policies can help make this catastrophic outcome a little bit less likely. So what can we do?
0: Well, you know, I think... Um there are bits that the Biden administration, uh, you know, they get they should get a lot of credit. They're they are doing more with allies, but um, allies are are not enough. I think, you know, it's very frustrating because one of the one of the ways to, um, sort of get sort of keep working with allies. It, and again, allies is not a panacea, but it will help, especially in Asia, is trade policy. And the U.S. has no trade policy. The U.S., it's, it's impossible for the U.S. to have a coherent trade policy because of domestic politics. In terms of sort of, you know, one of the key things is, is I think being clear-eyed about the Xi era and Xi's goals and aspirations and having a much more realistic view of of, of, to, of, of what she wants and what the party wants. And also, like I said, sort of stop sleepwalking and, and recognize that wh- what we see in Ukraine could definitely reoccur in Taiwan. You know, around the issue of t- Taiwan in particular, you know, the, the hard part, right, is it's, it's an easy rhetorical target here in D.C. You know, people can get up, make a speech, talk tough on Taiwan. It's really important that the U.S. government, U.S. Congress, that they push Taiwan to take their defense much more seriously, because Taiwan itself has been sleepwalking for quite some time around its own defense, and one of the risks is taiwan Taiwan is very skilled at working public opi- working sort of um, opinion in d c policy circles and one of the things I worry about is sort of th- the focus on the sort of shifting opinion in those circles is disconnected from the reality of Taiwan and its ability to defend itself. Because at the end of the day, if there is some sort of crisis, one, Taiwan's really far away and would be really hard to resupply. Two, as we learned with Ukraine, where, where Putin basically threatened the use of nukes if anyone intervened, China's a nuclear power too. So why wouldn't the same equation hold? Right? And, and, and so, again, it is a, you know... And I think this is one of the reasons why the U.S. the Biden administration, Secretary Blinken, are becoming much more vocal um, about Taiwan as they're trying to sort of rally uh, like-minded countries to at least be much more focused on the increasing risks around Taiwan. But at the end of the day, realistically, it's a hundred or so miles from the mainland. You know, it's it's a very difficult. Thing for the U.S. to help defend against if the PLA wanted to take Taiwan. It's also very difficult for the PLA to take, but it, it, it's, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, this is one of those questions where there are no good answers. The best answer is, can we figure out how to just keep pretending for another few decades that this will somehow get resolved peacefully eventually? Which is what basically the formula was starting
1: in the 70s. I mean, it's a terrible answer. No, I mean, it, it it might just be that the menu is just full of terrible answers. But that's why I wanted to walk us through all the things that are happening under Xi's reign, because um, it, what what scares me the most is is the level of chaos, the level of unpredictability. Um, not where you want to be when there's a possible, you know, war um, in Southeast Asia um, emerging. Uh, Bill Bishop, I really, really appreciate your help in helping us understand all of this. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Plain English is produced by Devin Manzi. If you like the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Give us a five-star rating. Leave a review. And don't forget to check out our TikTok, at Plain English underscore. That's at Plain English underscore on TikTok.